Uh, firstly, though, just to bring you greetings from our new church, that is where we currently uh, have moved to in Leeds. Leeds Community Church send their love and greetings. They're delighted to get rid of us for a weekend. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's great. It's a small, new church plant. There are 31 of us. Uh, two weeks ago, there were 30 of us. Uh, and then the caretaker got saved. <laughs> we meet in a school. He turns up every Sunday, and he decided, I want to be a part of this. Uh, two weeks ago, that was two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were 28. And then two uh, Iranian Kurdish uh, refugees, they are really, still waiting to be processed, um, gave their hearts to God for a Muslim background, uh, just overwhelmed with being part of a family. They had to flee their families, they had to leave their families, their homes, their jobs, everything, and just get out of the country. Simply having picked up someone at the side of the road who'd been shot, taken him to hospital, turns out he was viewed as an enemy of the state, and for helping him, they too have become enemies of the state. Just imagine living in a country like that. But hey, God has moved upon their hearts, and so now we're 31. We pray we'll be 40 by the summer. Anyway, there we go. Their greetings to you. So, we're uh, into Mark 6. I'm trying to make this work. There we go. And I was so pleased that both Claire and somebody else, Tom, I think, used the word flourishing, because I didn't know they were going to use that. But that's the, the title I've uh, chosen for this morning's look at Mark chapter 6. Faith that flourishes. Here he is. Apparently... <laughs> The country's favourite gardener. Yes. Definitely, definitely my wife's favourite gardener. I'm not sure if it's the courgettes or the curls, but I think it might be the curls. Anyway, uh, be that as it may, not a programme that he records goes by without it being recorded in our house and uh, watched at some subsequent point. Monty uh, has many titles, but one of them is this one. Uh, the king of compost, he will describe himself in that way. Uh, and he will say there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't also be able to grow these magnificent vegetables, king-sized vegetables. The secret, he will say, is compost. I'm old enough to remember Sunday lunch at home as a child. One or two of you might also remember this. Listening to Around the Horn or Beyond Our Ken. Uh, programs, the titles of which were puns on the name of Kenneth Horn, who starred in the program. I've seen some one or two nodding heads around the place. I don't think I was old enough to appreciate the subtlety of the humour uh, but I do remember Kenneth Williams, a young Kenneth Williams in those days, um, playing the part of one Arthur Fallowfield. Anybody remember Arthur Fallowfield? Okay. 
And, to, and his answer to every question was, well, I believe the answer lies in the soil. <laughs> there we go. This is all about the soil in which flourishing faith grows. <coughs> Chapter 6 of Mark's Gospel can be easily divided into six little sections, six cameos, if you like, and you can relax because we're not doing all six <laughs> this morning, just the first half. <clears throat> it's a breathless gospel. In fact, uh, Tom Wright describes the whole of Mark's gospel as a breathless gospel. Those of you who are following it uh, fortnight by fortnight in your home groups will perhaps have read that in his outline already. A breathless gospel. Everything's moving at a breathless pace, a breathtaking pace. And this chapter is no exception. So we're just going to read the first 29 verses or so of this breathless gospel. Behind it is an unspoken question. What is it that causes faith to flourish and grow? And as we'll see, it's got everything to do with the soil, the soil being the state of our hearts, the depths that Claire was referring to. And in these six little cameos, we are going to try and uncover things that either hinder our faith or factors that will encourage faith to flourish. You could call this whole talk, composting for faith. Okay, So we'll read it together. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a tablet or whatever, uh, Mark 6, 1. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And then Jesus told them, a prophet is honoured everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people, and he called his twelve disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick. No food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, Stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, then shake its dust from your feet as you leave that, as you leave, to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. <coughs> Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus. Because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, 
This must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Others said, he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favour to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless, for Herod respected John. And knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, the leading citizens of Galilee, and then his daughter, also named Herodias, uh, came in and performed a dance uh, that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I'll give it to you. He even vowed, I'll give you whatever you ask, up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the girl and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he had said. But because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an execution to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. So three sections here in the first of which Jesus returns to Nazareth. It was his boyhood home. He was the oldest son of Mary. We get the names of four other brothers, and there are sisters as well. It's likely that Mary was widowed uh, fairly early in the upbringing of those children, and so she needed her big boy, her oldest, to become the breadwinner, to step up into Joseph's shoes and be the head of the family. And he made an income for them, as we all know, through being a carpenter, a cabinet maker, a skilled craftsman. And for 30 years, he was known in his village as the cabinet maker or the carpenter. And that's how it was that he left. He came back a little while later as a rabbi with disciples in tow, preaching and teaching preceded by stories of miracles. And in the town of his birth, or at least not of his birth, but of his upbringing, where well, he was born in Bethlehem, the question was, were these tall tales or a truthful testimony? The community was divided, it seems. Some welcomed him and listened to him Sunday by Sunday, or rather Saturday by Saturday in the synagogue, Others were offended, <coughs> deeply offended, says Mark, and scoffed at him. For those people, familiarity had leached faith.
from their hearts. <clears throat> this is Mary's boy. We know him. We know his family. He's just, just a carpenter. Who does he think he is? Presuming to come here as a rabbi and tell us, his neighbours and friends, how we should be living our lives and so on. They were deeply offended. And Jesus was amazed at their unbelief such that he could do only a few healings. We might settle for that, mightn't we? But he couldn't do any major miracles because unbelief was in the climate and undermining faith. We just moved house, as you know, and uh, we have a garden. Liz is a gardener, so that was one of the deals. We're going to move house. It's got to have a garden. Um, and this garden we are looking at and watching very carefully as spring approaches. I sincerely hope that it's absolutely laden with flowering shrubs and trees and bushes. I am beginning to lose faith. <laughs> We've seen a crocus. <laughs> There's the promise of maybe two daffodils. This is a large garden. The ground is hard. It looks very much as though very little has been done with it for a very long time. I fear our garden is fallow. I don't think it's received a gardener's touch, the dig of a spade, the sound of a hoe. I don't think much has gone on for a long time. There's maybe four or five little bits of grass amongst a sea of moss. It will come into its own shortly before hanging basket time because there's enough moss to bring a hanging basket lining to every house in Leeds, and then some, I suspect. But not a lot else appears to be growing there. It's like this field, a fallow field, a field that looks the same in, it looks the same regardless of the, the, uh, the season. Spring, summer, autumn, winter, winter, it looks much the same. It has consistency, to commend it. It's predictable, you know what it's going to look like when you cycle past, but it's paying an awful price for that consistency. It doesn't know the adventure of growth. It doesn't know the feeling of the plough scything its way and breaking up that hard topsoil. It doesn't know the wonder of seed sown uh, germinating and springing up. It doesn't know the sound of the combine and the joyous cries of families and children as the harvest comes in. It's fallow. Hosea said to the people of God at one stage, break up your fallow ground that God can rain the rains of righteousness upon you afresh, that you can produce a harvest of righteousness. Nazareth was a fallow field. Jesus could do so little there because the ground was trammeled by familiarity. It wasn't ready to receive him. It wasn't willing 
to bring forth a harvest. Consistency is sometimes, even in Christendom, seen as a virtue. We're the same. We never change. It is as it always has been, and sometimes that's perceived as a virtue. But what a high price. Safe, but sterile. Comfortable, possibly, but no sign of compost. No gyrus, like we read about in chapter 5. Believing God, believing Jesus for a miracle for his sick daughter. No woman with a 12-year hemorrhage reaching out to touch the hem of his garment. No blind beggars, no centurion, none of those to whom Jesus said, because you believed, these things have happened. What a high price Nazareth was going to pay. The story gives us a picture of faith as the currency of the kingdom. With it, nothing is impossible. Without it, it is impossible to please God. And in Nazareth, it was in very short supply. They had lowered expectations. They were resistant to change. They were unwilling to risk, all because they liked it the way it was. Familiarity made them sterile. Faith did not flourish in that atmosphere. The second story shows you what God does about We begin to see Jesus moving from village to village, teaching and <coughs> preaching. And we see how he began to foster faith in the hearts of his followers. He is the true king of compost, if you like. Disciples, particularly the twelve, had heard him preach. They'd heard him say, why do you fret over the little things? Why do you fret over what you will eat and what you will drink? Doesn't your heavenly Father know what you need? Consider the birds, consider the flowers of the field. They don't fret, and yet your heavenly Father takes care of them. They'd heard that message. They'd also heard him say when they were fearful, crossing the lake in the boat, he'd said, let's go over the other side, and he was asleep in the back, and the storm came up, and they were afraid. And they wake him up and he seems rather severely to say, Oh, you of little faith. They began to understand that there was a currency here that was missing in their hearts, but Jesus was determined to see change. And in this little cameo, as we've read, he doesn't wait for them to become giants in the faith. He sends them out as they are. In another, another gospel, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves in order to put them into an environment where faith will flourish. Listen, this isn't about struggling this morning. This is about flourishing. This is about understanding the strategies of God to help us be people whose hearts are ready to to give, bring forth a harvest of faith that will see change in our communities, that will see breakthrough in evangelism, that will see the healings and the breakthroughs and the miracles that Rob was talking about. That 
That doesn't happen by accident. And Jesus loves us enough to say, I'm going to put you in places where money doesn't work. Believe that. I want you to leave the clothes behind as well as the money. I want you to leave the food behind. Do you understand what I'm doing here? I'm putting you in a position of vulnerability, a place of no safety net. That's the strategy the king of compost has. That's what works that compost into our, the soil of our lives, if you like. That's the kind of vulnerability that means that our only security is in our Father. That's what drives roots down so that when the storms come, the tree stands. It doesn't happen by reading the books from a comfortable position in our armchairs in front of the fire. It comes from being thrust by the king of compost into situations where we feel vulnerable. Guys, he said, off you go. Who? Us? We're very happy tagging along behind you. We'll hold on to your coattails, thank you very much. But you've got to do the praying. You've got to put lay your hands on you. You're the guy that's got the message. We're right behind you, Jesus. Well, that was okay for a bit. But long before they felt ready, here's Jesus saying, off you go. You look back and ask yourself, in what seasons has faith grown the fastest in your life? And I guarantee you will say, in those seasons where change was on every hand, where difficulty surrounded you, where you couldn't see what you were doing or where you were going, where God seemed a million miles away and you just felt utterly exposed. I bet that's what drove your roots down fastest. And faith began to flourish. God tells the story uh, likening himself to an eagle. I may have told you this story before many years ago. I can't remember. It came back to me today as I was preparing. He said, like an eagle who stirs up her nest. I don't know if any of you enjoy ornithology, but um, uh, the golden eagle builds its nest 12 foot wide at the top of a rocky crag, an inaccessible place. They normally lay just two eggs and frequently only one survives. And this chick grows rapidly because the eagle is a very attentive parent. Uh, two attentive parents. And so the eagle gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it's at least as big as the adult bird, if not bigger because of its downy feathers. Uh, and then the day comes where this uh, mollycoddled chick, think two feet tall, think eight foot wingspan um, for chick, finds its parents suddenly becoming hostile. And the nest that has been its home suddenly becomes a very unfriendly place because the parent bird starts hovering over it and flapping its enormous wings and all the dust and all the debris and all the bits of bone and gristle and everything else that littered this nest start flying through the air. And the other parent at the same time starts pulling at the 
the, the, uh, the sticks and twigs that have made up this nest. And the nest goes from being 12 foot wide to 8 foot to 6 foot to 4 foot to 2 foot. And this enormous chick is perched precariously on the edge of a cliff with its home in tatters and its parents apparently trying to make life as miserable for it as it can. And if that's not bad enough, the next thing that happens is that it gets a barge off the edge of the nest. Now this... This bird has been very happy flapping its wings. It's exercising as a chick on the, on the, in the security of the nest. But it's never flown. It's never learned what it was intended to be. It's never discovered the intention of the creator behind making eagles, that they should soar, that they should ride the winds, that they should flourish in the worst of storms until... Somebody kicks it out of the nest. And of course it just tumbles for a bit. And then the parent bird swoops down underneath, catches it on its back and flies up again and rolls over. And the whole thing gets repeated until this little bird learns, little bird, this young bird learns to fly. Read it for yourself. It's a fabulous story. And God says, I'm like that. That's a scary thought. God says, I'm like that. I'm not interested in your comfort, your security, your coziness. I'm not interested in things being the same all the time. I'm interested in change and growth and development because I intend you to fly, to lock those wings of trust in place and learn to soar above. This is what Paul said, you know. <laughs> Whatever happens, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. That that's what he's referring to, that same kind of experience. So he sent them out. He gave them authority, <coughs> and he gave them company. That's important. He sent them out two by two. That's a great help, isn't it? Great help. That's the adventure of trust. It's too late now. You're in the air. And if they don't catch you, it's going to look messy. It's going to be painful. It's going to be ugly. That's faith. That's the adventure. That's what, that's what we were made for. Not sitting in the nest, but discovering what it's like to fly. And underneath are not just people's arms, but everlasting arms. There's the father's arms. There's the parent bird ready to catch. This is a controlled experiment. You guys are going out. Mighty. Take someone with you. This is a together thing. This is a companionship thing. These steps of faith are best taken together. Praying together. Going together. Witnessing together. Sharing together. It's the hardest thing in the world to do these things on your own. So Jesus sent them out two by two. It's a good thing to remember. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I, did got, I have got something in my page here. Uh, but I'm not going to have time to read it is a chapter that's often quoted in, in, uh, in weddings, the threefold chord is uh, not easily evoked. Actually, it's about friendship. It is about marriage, no doubt, but it's about friendship generally. It's about being woven together, two of us with the third chord, the unbreakable chord of God's presence and God's participation. You go home and read that for yourself if you like. The final point is this, and I'll do it quickly. It's the story uh, that we've 
read about John the Baptist. Word about Jesus reaches Herod and it reminds him of John the Baptist. It reminds him of John the Baptist because his conscience is still troubling him. But, and, and he goes back and tells the story, or Mark tells the story of how rather than lose face on that birthday party evening, he had John beheaded in fulfillment, fulfillment of a wild, rash, and probably drunken promise to his uh, uh, daughter, or rather, uh, stepdaughter. John had been a frequent visitor, a somewhat disturbing guest, but one which Herod loved to have because he respected him. And John himself, of course, was unflinching in speaking truth to power. <coughs> And it got him into trouble because of Herodias. He ended up in prison and would have ended up without his head long beforehand had she had her way, but he enjoyed the protection, at least for a season, of the king. It seems so cheap, so flippant, so such a waste, doesn't it, the story of John's behaviour. But even in prison, he was fruitful. Time after time after time, he went back and spoke to Herod. He wasn't afraid to speak the truth. Herod, you've stolen your living brother's wife. You've dumped your own wife. She's not just somebody else's wife so that you are an adulterer, but she's also related to you so that this is a form of incest. You're doubly at fault here. This was a strong message, and he was risking his life. You see, faith is not just about healing and miracles. It's not just about the fun stuff. Sometimes it's about courage in adversity. Sometimes it's about faithfulness in a hostile environment when it would be safer to keep your head down. Composting our faith may bring times of trial and testing. Indeed, the whole New Testament is a witness to that very thing. Look at Paul's life. Read 2 Corinthians. I've got a number of references down here to share with you, but time won't allow. Just read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 4 and see the fixes and the scrapes that Paul got himself into, at the end of all of which he was able to say, I can do everything through Christ. Indeed, I've learned to appreciate the weakness and the vulnerability of my situation because that's the very time when the strength of the Lord is best shown in me. Read Peter's letter, his first letter uh, uh, to uh, uh, the first chapter of the first letter, written to a suffering church and saying, this is how to flourish in the midst of suffering. Remember what's coming. Remember that your faith is like gold that's being purified through this hostile time that you're going through. In fact, be grateful for it because it's doing you good. We were at this conference last weekend that Tom referred to and Malcolm Duncan uh, was speaking and he said something I wrote down in my notes and turned up before today. He said, external pressures, far from preventing flourishing, foster it. And then he went on to say this. He said, the harder they are, the better we become. That's what I wrote. The harder we are, they are, the better we become. Why? Because they put our roots down. Why? Because that's what 
creates the environment for faith in our hearts. <clears throat> Look what happened to the Chinese church during the years of the Cultural Revolution and see how gloriously it endured through that difficult time. The same thing is happening in North Korea right now. 300,000 believers, one in four of them, in a hard labor camp. Most of them will not come out of those camps. Most of them will die of deprivation or disease or torture. The harder they are, the better we become. <coughs> I'm not suggesting that we should pray and invite trouble because it'll come anyway. Faith is the currency of the kingdom. By it we lay hold of the life that is to come and pull it right now into the present. Faith is what lays hold of the promises of God and hold on, holds on to them until they come to pass. Faith has its focus in God. It's not an entity in itself. It's faith in someone. Faith has to be in something or someone. I've met patients who have faith in garlic when they've got a sniffy nose. And Christian faith is faith in a person. It's a faith in God himself. As a father to provide for his children. As the one who has spoken in his word to fulfill his promises, to keep that word. As someone who knows just exactly what we can face and, what, and, and how long those seasons and how deep those seasons of trial and struggle and stress will be. God knows all that. He is fashioning in us the soil that will produce a harvest of faith. So we've seen what hinders faith, familiarity that leads to fallowness. We've seen what it's like to be involved in an adventure of faith, learning to fly, pushed by God out of the nest because we were intended for adventure. Not on our own, but with others. Not unauthorized, like clothed and the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, we've seen that faith has a cost. For John the Baptist, it was that ultimate cost. For all of us, it will be some kind of cost. It won't come cheap. But when John looked into heaven, he saw those who were overcomers by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they had not loved their lives even to the point where they were prepared to lay them down. Lord Jesus, we want to say to you today, grow faith in our hearts. Push us into those situations where we've nowhere else to turn except you. Tip us out of our comfort and our familiarity and cause us to fly. Lord Jesus, we want to flourish in faith and we're happy to pay the price. Whatever that might be, so that Lord, we can reproduce the kind of breakthrough faith that will see lives all over this village and all over this county transformed and changed as they encounter the God who is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.